Good morning, and welcome to chapel. Good morning. This morning, we are very excited to have with us um, again, Michelle Hirschberger. Michelle comes to us from Heston College in Heston, Kansas, where she is a professor of Bible. And we have been um, blessed by her presence here on campus over the last two days. She spoke in this space on Wednesday, um, sharing one of her personal stories of faith. And if you missed that, um, feel free to go onto iTunes and check it out. All of our chapels and convos are podcasted on iTunes. So just type in Goshen College Podcast um, and you should be able to find it. So take the time to listen to it if you missed it. So over the past two days, Michelle has been speaking with us and um, having conversation with us about how to foster a vibrant spiritual life while on campus, talked with students about the future of the Mennonite Church, spoke with local pastors yesterday about how to help youth articulate their faith. So she's been busy, and we've been very happy to have her with us. This morning, she will be speaking with us on the subject of adjusting the lens of salvation, biblical Jesus and shalom. So as we begin worship this morning, please join me in prayer. God of hope, and God of love, we are thankful this morning for Michelle's presence with us. We thank, we thank you for the stories she has shared with us, for the challenges she has given us, and may our conversations that have started this week continue in the weeks to come. Open our hearts to you this morning. Still our racing minds and our, our busy bodies. Open us to hearing your word and your voice through Michelle this morning. Be present to us and be real to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning I light our lamp as a symbol of God's presence among us and as a reminder that Jesus is our hope and the light of the world. Now a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. When Jesus returned, a crowd of people was waiting for him and welcomed him. A man named Jairus, an official of the synagogue, stepped forward and fell at Jesus' feet. He begged Jesus to come to his house, for his only daughter, who was 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus moved along, the crowd almost crushed him. In the crowd was a woman who had suffered from hemorrhages for 12 years and had found no one who could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When no one nearby responded, Peter said, Rabbi, it's the crowd pressing around you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I felt power leave me. When the woman realized that she had been noticed, she approached in fear and knelt before him. She explained in front of the crowd why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I forgot that. Oh, well. The cross-country team, that is so cool. I'll get it later. I just think that's so cool. The challenge um, this week has been to fight the temptation to shape Jesus into our own image instead of the other way around. We've talked about two ways to fight that temptation. One is to understand Jesus more fully in his cultural historical context. And the other one is to choose a stance about the world, to choose to believe, or at least to acknowledge that it's impossible to believe and to ask the Spirit to help us, but, but to dare the disappointment, the riskiness, to believe in a living, breathing Jesus. Ironically, some people do the first thing really well and the second not so good, and some people do the second thing really well and the other the first way not so good. Luke Timothy Johnson says, oh, can we find a place between the historicism that wants to lock Jesus in the past and a mysticism that wants to vaporize the particularity of Jesus altogether. And I say, oh, yeah, there is a place. We got to find it. We have to find it. So to another Bible story. But before I begin, I have to be honest. Um, I got my inspiration for this story for Rob Bell, and I probably just downright stole some things from him. But I did check it out. I did my own research. But he was the one who first got me interested in this idea. So here we go. Numbers 15, verse 38. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now a good Jew, specifically a Jew in Jesus' day, they would refer to these first five books, the five books of Moses, they would refer to these books as, as Torah. And Torah was life. Now, to understand Jews in the days, and to understand Jesus' context, which is what we want to do, we would understand that they thought of, of God as a lover in search of a bride. And, and, and God loves them so much that he has given them the way, the way, the, the here's how to find maximum joy, maximum peace, maximum contentment. Here's how to get it all. So preeminent in the mind of a Jew, and, and we're trying to study Jesus in his context as a Jewish rabbi, we have to understand that Torah was everything. Following the ways of God, that was everything. They would even refer to Torah as the way, the truth, and the life. Hmm. Numbers 15, verse 38, God says to Moses, Yahweh says to Moshe, speak to the Israelites and say to them, you are for generations to come to attach tassels to the corners of your garments, so that you'll remember my commands and, and not prostitute yourselves and, and essentially go after other lovers. Listen, if you want to drive somebody crazy, tell them on a circular robe garment to attach something to the corners. Right? Oh, this gave the rabbis much to discuss. Yeah. So nevertheless, God said to attach tassels to the corners of your garments. Now, the two Hebrew words that are used here are fascinating. The, the, the word for, this is not really a prayer shawl, by the way. This is Tara's scarf from Women's Chorus. Thank you very much. But anyway, I, I need to get a prayer shawl, but I need to have the money to go to the Middle East, and that's another issue. But The fringe is called tzitzi, and then the border is called kanaf. So God says, attach tzitzi to the corner of your kanaf. 
so you remember who you are. So a Torah-observant Jew would wear a prayer shawl, even to this day. And maybe you have seen people wear these. Have, Have you seen this? Yeah. Like sometimes you'll see, like men just right underneath their suit coat, all you'll see are the little strings, right? And that's little sissy. Ah. So a Torah-observant Jew in Jesus' day would wear a prayer shawl to the temple, to the synagogue, of course, and practically all the time because you always wear it when you pray. And by the way, when you go to temple, what you would do is you would take these strings, which each have all sorts of significant meanings, and you would wrap them around your fingers. Oh, God is a God knows how we're wired, that we're tactile people, that we have to feel stuff. And so that's why we do this. And then when you get into the temple area, you would go like this. And this would be your prayer closet. See, Jesus wasn't just talking about that place where you put the brooms, right? No, he says you need to go into your prayer closet because it's between you and God. Now, we even have record of, of Pharisees or at least one Pharisee, whose seats he was so long that it dragged on the ground when he walked around. And remember, Jesus said, he said, now don't you be like the Pharisees who make their seats long so as to make religious display. No, it's about your heart connecting to Yahweh. Okay. So you would wear your prayer shawl to the synagogue uh, at Shabbat, the Sabbath, and there would be, at the beginning of the service, prayers, and then they would bring out the book, the scroll. And probably your village could only afford one Torah scroll. And the leader, the Hassan, would hand it to the appointed Torah reader, the teacher of the day. And the teacher was to go out among the congregation and to read the scriptures and to preach from the scriptures. So the teacher of the day would parade Torah in the middle of the congregation. And he would go like this. And you, this is what you would do. You, you would push and shove and fight and and gnarl your way so you could get up to where you could touch Torah and maybe even kiss Torah because you were so in love with the words of God. You had this love affair with God because God loved you and gave you Torah. So you would dance and you would stomp and you would sing and you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Might means body. So you would dance before the Lord. And so you would be dancing and stomping and singing. And the teacher of the day was to be the leader in this. The teacher of the day was to be the main example for intensity and passive and passion. Dancing with Torah in the congregation. So when Luke chapter 4 says that Jesus was the Torah reader of the day, that means Jesus was the lead dancer. Jesus might not have been Mennonite. But there was a love and a passion for Torah. Then, then at the end of the services, a member of the clan of Levites would stand before you and hold out his hands. Now, the, word, the Hebrew word kanaf, which is borders, could also be translated wings. So in some way, your prayer shawl had Wings. Do you, do, you, do you see it? You know, just kind of like God has wings where you can take refuge. So this is what you would see at the end of every Shabbat. The priest, his arms extended, his, his prayer shawl, his kanaf, his, his wings extended. 
giving you the benediction. Now, the prophet Malachi said that when the sun of righteousness rises, there will be healing in his wings. Now, the prophet was drawing, I mean, obviously, I think, uh, on God having shelter in his wings. Nevertheless, the legend developed that you could take this prophecy literally. So what developed that when Messiah came, one of the ways that you would know that he is Messiah is that there would be healing in his wings. Healing in his tzitzit. Now to Luke chapter 8. Back to the woman. She's pushing and shoving. She's, she's elbowing her way through the crowd. She's got to get to Jesus. She's had an issue of blood for 12 years. And we read in our Bible and the text says that she grabbed the edge of his cloak. Our English NIVs, they say she grabbed the edge of his cloak. And we're thinking, what? And the sermons that I heard at Sycamore Grove would say, oh, well, you know, she tripped, and then that was the only part of Jesus she could touch. And, and, and she was really, she was clawing and stretching, trying to get there. And the, and the point of this sermon is, be persistent. Be persistent. No. Why did she grab the edge of his cloak? And Jesus has this weird discussion with the disciples. Jesus says, hey, who, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, but boss, but boss. I mean, there is all these people here. And Jesus says, no, 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 somebody touched me. Why in the world does Jesus need to know who touched him? I mean, there's this weird discussion. And he said, who touched me? Who touched me? Because, you know, I felt the power lead me. And you're going, whoa, Star Wars Jesus. <laughs> the power left me. Like, wait. <laughs> No, because he's, he, he's got to know. He says, Some, who touched me? And then they say, well, there's all these people. There's all these people. And he says, no, 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 somebody touched me. Why does Jesus need to know who touched him? Somebody in the crowd believes I'm the what? Yeah, somebody in the crowd believes I'm Messiah. This woman, somebody in the crowd, believes I'm Messiah. So the woman grabs his tzitzi, his fringe, and she's healed. Now, the fascinating thing is that so many people stop right there with the physical healing. And that is very important, but you don't want to stop there. I want to take you deep into a word that Jesus uses with her because I think it has profound ramifications for how we lead our lives in the communities that we serve. Jesus looked at her and said, your faith has healed you. Go in, and your English Bible say, peace. But Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and he would have used a phrase central to the life of a Torah follower. Jesus looks at the woman, and he says, go in shalom. Shalom. Our understandings of, of peace, our Greek Western understandings of peace usually mean an absence of war. So when we talk about peace in our homes, we're talking about let's not rip each other's eyeballs out. And, and, and when we think about peace in the Middle East, we pray that people aren't killing each other. And that's fine and good. But the Hebrew Eastern understanding of shalom is far deeper and more extensive than that. In Jesus' day, shalom was the presence of God. It was spiritual health and wholeness now. 
It was, it included that inner peace, that inner good healed relationship between you and God, the inner peace that evangelicals talk about. But it also included a right relationship with others, with one's inner self, and with the physical world. It meant having enough to eat and having decent labor and a good house. It meant all of those things. Shalom was a healing of all four of these relationships. Think about, just for a second, the first, the four fall stories or sin stories in the book of Genesis. These stories define what sin is. And sin breaks all four of these relationships. Story of Adam and Eve. Because they disobey God, they obviously have a broken relationship with God, right? And they have a broken relationship with their inner psyche, their inner selves, illustrated by being ashamed of, of their nakedness. They fight with each other, so that relationship is broken. And, the, and the, with the physical world, that's broken too. The ground gets cursed. And all of the false stories, it's all the same thing. And shalom is what heals those four relationships. So when Jesus says that to the woman, he isn't just talking about the physical healing. He is saying, may you go in the shalom of God. Now, Jews understood, and in Jesus' day, salvation was understood holistically. Jesus didn't say to the woman, hey, I'll see you in heaven. No. No, he says, may you go in the shalom of God. Yes, it includes physical healing, and yes, it includes freedom from political oppression and rescue in that way. And it, and it does mean that, but it also means spiritual wholeness and harmony walking with God. My dear friends, most American Christians do not understand salvation in that way, that biblical way. Most North American Christians do not understand salvation holistically. Maybe even here at Goshen. Let's pretend for just a minute that this isn't Goshen College, but that this is another Christian college. And this is a completely pretend Christian college. We're just pretending. A pretend Christian college that maybe has a little bit of a different piety than we do, maybe a different spiritual emphasis than what I perceive to be here at Goshen. This is what I would say to them, and what you get to do is you just get to listen in, all right? Here we go. First, I would harp a little bit on how they only get the part about the cross working for them and miss the part about the cross working in them. I would congratulate them on being half right. You know, the story, we're sinners and Jesus has taken our sins and nailed them to the tree. The power of the cross is that we are been forgiven and, 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 and been made to have right standing with God. And I say to that, okay, but there's more. Not only does the cross save me, but the cross works inside of me. There's a continual process of, of cleansing and redemption. And I would try to get this other college to see that Christianity is more than just a legal transaction. Maybe you know the metaphor. We all have spiritual ATMs, and because we've sinned, we're broke, and Jesus is loaded. Yeah, yeah. And so, when we say the sinner's prayer, bank accounts get switched, and suddenly we, we have his deposit. And I would call this, while it's a fine thing, thank God, I would call this not the whole story, Right? So, you know, bank accounts get switched in the heavenly realms and God is the only one who gets changed. 
and I have a full bank account and, and I'm in. And then suddenly the presentation of the gospel becomes, hey, do you want to know how you can get your sins forgiven and go to heaven and I can help you say the prayer and then you can have everything all tidied up and you can go to heaven. I mean, in Jesus' day, they didn't talk like that. Salvation was a way of life. Don't raise your hands on this. How many of you know somebody who said the prayer and right now it, that, that decision has absolutely no impact on their life and what they do whatsoever? Yeah, because if you present Christianity simply as a legal transaction, you're presenting a gospel that is, that is totally irrelevant for today. Now this other Christian college, I would get them to try to see that it's more than forgiveness. It's more than your sins have been removed. That's the deal. Now you can just kind of hang around because so you, you're not going to be left behind. You always need to get all of those cliches in there. Left behind. Never. But see, the scriptures talk about so much more than forgiveness. And thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for forgiveness. But the scriptures talk about restoration. See, God doesn't just want to forgive you. Mm. God wants to restore you to the person you were originally intended to be. God doesn't want to just switch bank accounts. God wants to mold you and shape you and transform you starting now. See, if we only do Christianity and salvation as a legal transaction, then, you know, then we're saved and we're in. Then our preaching is simply scaring the hell out of people. I hope it's all right to say that word. Our preaching is simply scaring the hell out of people. You don't want to go to hell, do you? you know, and ironically, I've never met anyone who said, oh, well, yeah, I, I think I do. <laughs> no. But understand, when we talk about it as in, you don't want to go there, do you? We got to admit that we're talking about it in ways that Jesus never did. I would try to get this other group to see that our, our salvation is more than someday. Well, someday I'll go to heaven. See, generally it, it is if we're saved and our sins have been forgiven and we're just kind of hanging around here and, and our faith all becomes someday. There's no power. It's just, it's just someday. And you end up with very few Christian environmental movements because they're all based on theologies of, well, hey, we're going to get out of here anyway, right? But I want to tell them about a Jesus who wants to come down. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible is just, the whole theme of the Bible is God wanting to come down. So Yahweh's walking around in the garden saying, Adam and Eve. You know, the whole master of the universe who created everything is, is, is wandering in a garden going, Adam and Eve, where are you? Does God not know? Come on. And, you know, and, and the pillar of cloud and fire, God can't get close enough. And Jesus come down, comes down, the word dwells among us. And what happens at Pentecost? The spirit comes down. And then we get to the end of the story, New Jerusalem. And do we go up? Uh-uh. New Jerusalem comes down. See, for many people, the presentation of the gospel is, do you want to go to heaven? And Jesus' gospel is, do you want to know how to get heaven here? For a lot of people, the deal is us going up. But the story of the Bible is a whole story of the God 
who wants to come down. For many people, salvation is nothing but fire insurance. Just believe and hope and pray and someday we're out of here. And the world means nothing. And I'm sad about that. Let's just be honest. That's what I would say to this other pretend Christian college. But I'm not at that other Christian college. I'm here at a place that I love. And I am wondering if maybe we don't make the opposite mistake. I'm wondering if it's possible to get lopsided on biblical salvation the other way. What does shalom mean here at Goshen College? It means recycling. And, and that's good, right? That's part of us healing the relationship between us and the physical world. I think it means protesting the war in Iraq. Wow, I wish every Christian did that. I think it means fighting injustice and standing in solidarity with oppressed people groups. That's good. That is all good. But it also means touching the edge of his cloak. My dear friends, it also means believing in, that Jesus is Messiah. Still, now, it means bending down and touching the tzitzit. It means believing. Why did Jesus have that crazy conversation with the disciples? Do you remember that one? You know, who touched me? Who touched me? You, you know, there was more than the physical healing that was going on there. Our dear woman in that story she needed something else. She needed to be forgiven. She needed to feel forgiven. She had pastoral needs. She had spiritual needs. In that cultural context, she was because of the bleeding and because she was just sick in general, she was considered unclean. In that context, physical disease was always connected with sin. And so therefore, she was automatically an outcast. So she needed public healing. Jesus knew what he was doing. She needed a public reinstatement. She needed Jesus to publicly call her clean and forgiven. Now, we might think that they were a bunch of barbarians for making that connection between physical sickness and sin. But the reality is, is the people believed it back then, and she needed that back then, right? And while I disagree that everybody who has cancer is automatically a bigger sinner than I am, on a certain level, that connection is true. Sin does affect every area of our lives, sometimes affecting us as innocent victims, not the ones who have sinned. Sin affects every area of our lives. When we sin, somebody or something gets hurt. The physical world gets hurt. So we need not only outward salvation, we need the inner salvation taking care of that stuff too. I don't know you personally, but if you are like every other Christian college I've been to, then some of you, this is really scary to say, but maybe most of you are lost in sin. 
even though you are a Christian. Now, the working for peace and justice part, you have that down really well. And, and you are ahead of the curve than those other colleges, and good for you, I mean, at least in the short run. But I'm asking the question, what about the other side of salvation, the spiritual side? Are you walking in the shalom? Are you walking in the shalom of God? I'm here to tell you today, and I know because I tried it and I failed, you cannot do the peace and justice stuff long term without also having a right relationship with God. You cannot do all the outward, wonderful shalom things, wonderful fighting against all this injustice stuff that you want to do. You cannot do that by just clenching your fists and gritting your teeth and being determined to do it or making some intellectual assent that this is the right thing that you are supposed to do. You cannot do it. You have to touch the seat seat. In the short term, absolutely you can do it. It will not serve you well for the long haul. I'm here to tell you that you will turn to other things to motivate you, to inspire you, to validate you. Guilt. Guilt and ugly, Master. Self-righteousness. And some of you will so long for some transcendent moment, will so long to get that inner part of you healed that you will turn to a false transcendence like alcohol and drugs. And maybe some of you already have gone there. I know some pacifists who struggle with hatred. And if you were in Regina Sean Stallsworth's class, and I told my, I am that pacifist. I had some inner healing that had to happen. I know some pacifists who are as angry as anybody. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? And it might not be you, it probably isn't you. Maybe I'm missing the mark completely, but I'm daring to take the risk that maybe this is true for some of you. Jesus came on this earth not only to stop wars and work for injustice and heal physical disease, but he also came to heal your soul. He also came to heal your soul. The question this morning is not, are you saved? The question is, are you being healed? And what's so awkward about it is a lot of, and this is me doing all these religious things. I'm running on a religious treadmill, and on the outside, it looks like I am just doing, I am wonderful doing all these Christianese things. And you know what I'm doing? I'm holding my pain at arm's length, keeping busy, 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 so I don't have to deal with it. And maybe that's you too. The question is not, are you saved? I'm asking this morning, are you healed? Are you walking in the shalom of God? Jesus wants to heal every relationship, even that relationship with the divine. I want to ask you to do, I want to beg you to do an imperative thing for the sake of the future of the church. Without losing the peace and justice stuff, dare to believe Dare to believe we are at a crucial point in the future of our church. Something new needs to happen. Be the generation that dares.
to touch the tzitzi. Let's close with a prayer. Living Christ, God of Shalom, thank you for Michelle's challenging words and invitation this morning. Pray that you might touch our hearts through her words and that we might go from this place seeking your Shalom, seeking to touch you, seeking your healing. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Michelle, very much. Let's express our gratitude.